Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Scott Richards via Skype. That's Pleasure right. to have you with us. It's great to be here. Yeah, and uh, prayers for any technical issues to be overcome as we set ourselves aside to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to do so by email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like to know the proper spelling of that, join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. And the fellowship is with two L's, if you're wondering. If you click on the Watch Live tab on the purple bar at the top of the screen, you'll be sent to where you can engage with us face-to-face. And noting that point as well, send your questions on the right-hand side of the screen in our little chat box. And noting as well, if you want to uh, contact us later on, the email address will be in a banner below our faces. If you would also like to listen to previous broadcasts, our website will automatically be streaming for the uh, times between we are airing live. And noting as well, if you want to know when the next broadcast will be in your respective time zone, we have a countdown to our next service. So we'll be looking forward to engaging with you there. If you would like to engage with us as well on social media, our YouTube page is A Reason for Hope, and our Facebook page is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Those who are accustomed to joining us there, feel free to continue to do so. But noting the tendency of social media is to be in the hands of those who may not like what we have to say at times. If we're ever not streaming for any reason other than the ones we give to you, technological issues perhaps, note that it wasn't our fault. You can still join us on our website, which we encourage you to make a regular occurrence so that, well, you uh, don't uh, end up dealing with uh, censorship issues. That being said, we're looking forward to answering your questions and hope that the questions come from the heart. If you uh, want to not only give us prayer support as well, but send along questions, maybe even from a non-believer, those are welcome too. Just make sure the questions are in the form of a question, sincere and pertaining to the Bible. We, of course, speaking of prayer requests, want to start off in a word of prayer. So why don't we do that before we get started and see where the Lord takes it? Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people, and I pray in your spirit. You know that we aren't and never have been worthy of you, but we want to ask that on the basis of what your Son has done for us, you would not only minister to us, but through us. Equip my Father and I to speak words of truth, edification, exhortation, and comfort, and more importantly, speak to the hearts and minds of those who are not only listening so that your name can be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so starting us off, uh, question sent, we'll say anonymously, because there's probably going to be a response to this. Um, the question is regarding Matthew or Luke rather, 22 and verse 36, regarding the justification of gun ownership for Christians. Now, they make the claim that we should trust God and be armed with the Spirit of God and his amour, not a Glock. Uh, and then, <laughs> yeah. among other side comments, I guess, they... Uh, 
I don't want to say there's some pride in this, but uh, I guess they take the other position and hold it quite strongly. So regarding the position, let's start in favor of the one leaving the question. What Bible passages would affirm trusting God for your safety and protection? And then we'll get into Luke 22 and other passages that would note that using firearms or any weapon for that matter to defend yourself is not sinful. Yeah, probably just going for uh, the jugular there, uh, we could point to passages like Psalm 91 uh, that says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my rock, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. It is you who delivers me from the snare of the trapper and the deadly pestilence. For you have covered me with your feathers in the shadow of your wings. I may find refuge. Your faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. Well, there are those who will take that particular passage and say, hey, uh, because God is my defense, uh, I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to resist evil people and so on. Uh, my uh, priority needs to be like in Romans chapter 12. If your enemy's hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you'll heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Uh, those will take those particular passages and say, well, you know, I uh, therefore uh, would never, say, carry a firearm or any way to resist evil. I'm just going to trust God and let him uh, be my refuge and my strength. Those are the passages they would tend to lean on. All right. So then building on that passage and, of course, the principles in place, is the person who uses a firearm rejecting those passages or, in a sense, following another set of principles? Well, no, I don't think a person who uses a firearm, the proper use of self-defense, has to do with wisdom and understanding and tact, I would say. You know, one of the passages we would point to is in Luke chapter 22 and verse 36. And we're going to be covering that passage in some depth at Calvary Christian Fellowship uh, this weekend. That's where we are in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples uh, first of all, saying to them, uh, when I sent you out uh, beforehand, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He says, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, among other things. Well, what Jesus was acknowledging was that there was a time when his followers would be threatened, and he upheld their right to self-defense. Uh, just a short time later, Peter was arrested and takes his sword out and cuts off the high priest servant's ear. Uh, Jesus rebukes Peter for that act. Why? Well, in his zeal to defend the Lord, Peter was standing in the way of God's will. Jesus told his disciples multiple times that he was going to be arrested, put on trial, and die. In other words, Peter acted unwisely in that situation. Jesus didn't need uh, his defense. In fact, Jesus goes on to point out that uh, with one word, he had over uh, 12 legions of angels uh, to uh, defend him. Well, an angel is anywhere from three to 6,000 troops, and one angel in one night wiped out 186,000 armed to the teeth Assyrian soldiers. So uh, the idea that uh, Peter needed to have a sword to defend Jesus uh, wasn't uh, true. But the reason that they said they had two swords among them, they were very small swords. Uh, we get our same term machete from the kind of swords the disciples said they had. Uh, you know, it has something to do with the fact that uh, when the disciples were going to be traveling, like uh, the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan 
indicates there were robbers and uh, violent people that would try to take advantage of them along the way. Uh, there was no problem whatsoever in Jesus' mind with them having uh, the means to defend themselves. You know, and, and so, you know, we talked before a bit about Exodus chapter 22, uh, about the parameters of self-defense. If a thief is caught breaking in at night, Exodus 22 and verse 2 says, and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. So we see a couple different uh, principles here. Uh, first of all, uh, we see that there's nothing wrong with having private property and uh, that one has the right to defend that property. But the full exercise of the right of self-defense has to depend on the situation. Nobody should be too quick to use deadly force against another, even uh, someone who means to do them harm. If someone's set upon by a thief in the middle of the night, uh, in the confusion of the moment, that thief is killed, the law didn't charge that homeowner with uh, murder in any way, shape, or form. But if the thief was caught in the house during the day, uh, when the homeowner would probably be uh, unlikely to be awoken from sleep, uh, the law forbade the killing of the thief. In other words, the homeowner could drive the thief away, but in those situations, uh, considered self-defense, deadly force was expected to be a, result, a, uh, a resort uh, that would be turned to last only in the event of a panic surprise attack scenario. And, you know, we would ask the question, why would an individual break into someone's home at night uh, that was probably in order to gain a physical advantage over that homeowner? And so the law of Moses guaranteed uh, the homeowner the benefit of the doubt that apart from the darkness and confusion of the attack, uh, he wouldn't intentionally use lethal force against the thief. Uh, but in the case of self-defense against the thief, a godly person was expected to try to restrain the assailant rather than resort to killing him. Uh, you know, again, we do see uh, in Scripture that self-defense uh, was used nonviolently by the Apostle Paul, by him using his rights as a Roman citizen to avoid uh, being unjustly flogged by the Romans in Jerusalem. This is found in Acts chapter uh, 16 uh, and, and 22, or Acts 22, and in Acts 16, I should say, uh, there's another incident that after he was flogged, he used his similar defense in Philippi uh, to defend his rights uh, under that set of circumstances. So uh, the idea of turning the other cheek, though, that's kind of a different thing, isn't it, Sean? Oh, yeah. When it comes to someone striking you with their hand in your right cheek, turn the left to them also. That is speaking to an audience that understood a slap on the face wasn't a challenge to fight. It was an insult to your character. Right. But even if we don't read in that cultural context, we can still take a step back and go, is my interpretation of that passage justified? And since I have examples, not just in the Old, but in the New Testament, of people given legal parameters to defend themselves against abuse, whether in lethal force or in, and this is key, non-spiritual forms. And this is where we're making the point of emphasis, not just in Luke 22, but in Acts 22 as well. It isn't wrong to use everything and even the fullest thing at your disposal to secure the security of your family. Now, if you have the faith that says, I can trust God to be the greatest possible defense of my family, 
I would give you a half a thumb up. And why would I say a half? The reason is because it falls dangerously close to the mindset that Satan was encouraging to Jesus in his temptations in the wilderness. When he quotes the Psalms out of context and says, oh, uh, he shall give his angels charge of you and he shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. There was a presumption on the way Satan was presenting the scripture that if you put yourself in harm's way, withholding, say, for example, the ability for home defense, then God will fill in the gap. God's obligated to keep me safe even though I have the ability to do things wisely and prepare for those moments. Now, there's an equal and opposite side to this. I can't own a firearm because of my mental state. I know that it would be misused. But I also am aware that there needs to be an opportunity for home defense, which is why I purposely sought out a roommate who's in the military who's closer to the front door. And the point being made is just that. I'm trying to be wise about this. But I don't willfully withhold wisdom in order to make God obligated to defend me. The psalm that Satan was quoting out of context notes, in all your ways. What ways? The ones who make God their refuge. You say, well, that's what I'm doing. No, you're not. You're not letting God not only equip you for the proper way to live your life, but living your life in such a way where you are setting yourself apart from those who are exercising wisdom in other directions. So when it comes to a Christian who encourages pacifism, that's fine. But understand that those Christians who don't aren't being sinful, aren't being less spiritual, aren't being foolish any more than the individual who is allowing God to be their defense is. But if you lord over people and say, well, I don't own a firearm, I'd say that actually puts you more at risk because now people know, with less uh, intent and repute, are going to see you as a more easily targetable individual. Now, of course, there are other ways of defending your home, but the point is still moot. What we want to address in this question isn't whether or not Christians can own a firearm. That's a moot point. If you say, well, nowhere in the Bible does it say uh, whether or not you can own a Glock or a 22 or a 44 or whatever, it's ultimately irrelevant if I understand the scripture isn't explaining to me like Islam, this is what you do to live your life. It's telling me how to live my life in wisdom and in love, and noting the balance between those two is also a compliment. It is not loving for me to neglect the safety of my home. It is loving for me to seek the greatest security for my home. It is faithful for me to trust God as the greatest security of my home, but it is not wise, it is not faithful to presume of God that he will do things that he has put in my power to take advantage of. The story is often told. God sent a plane to an individual who was drowning at sea, a boat, uh, you know, uh, the Humvees and all the others. He ends up drowning and goes to heaven and says, God, why didn't you save me? Why didn't you answer my prayer? And he says, I sent you a boat. I sent you a plane. I sent you a Humvee. I sent all these things. You didn't get them? No, they were expecting God to save them through some divine means. God is not against the practical. God encourages it. Read the book of Proverbs. But when it comes to the idea of, well, I just trust God to defend my home. That's why I don't need a firearm. Well, let's take a step back and say, I don't need to be, uh, I don't need to secure my finances. If a pickpocket comes after me, I trust God will convict their heart. That's foolish. 
If on the other hand, you'd say, you know, I trust God to give me wisdom in this situation, which is why I think he laid it on my heart to make sure that anywhere I go where pickpockets abound or in how I handle my finances is going to be least stealable as possible. I don't then also set myself up for failure by saying, when things go wrong in this life, God, why weren't you faithful? It's silly. Yeah. Yeah. I I just remember when we visited Israel, talk about a place where you're going to be walking by faith, yeah. you know, <laughs> the uh, travel agency goes into great detail about how you've got to protect yourself, not just against pickpockets, but against people with those RFID scanners and so forth, and put your credit cards in one of those uh, kind of uh, special shielded things that, that people can't read your credit cards from. You know, and it, it's not a lack of faith that causes you to do that. It's just good stewardship. All right. Um let us know if that helps. I know we weren't uh, kind, but we want to be honest. So with that said, a uh, question on our YouTube page from King Technology. Uh, why did the Bible not tell us the dates of Christmas and Easter? Actually, they do tell us yeah. the date of Easter, just not according to the Babylonian Gregorian calendar. If uh, we're asking for what month, what day, what right. year, uh, you're demanding the Bible to adhere to something that wouldn't be invented for another couple centuries. That's silly. But if on the other hand, you're asking when can we match the dates that are given to us in Scripture to the timing of Easter in the Bible, when would that be? And then we'll get into Christmas. Yeah, well, Easter is an easy one. Uh, We know that Easter happened uh, on the the day of the Passover, Nisan 14th, on the Jewish calendar. So we know that uh, we just go back uh, and use the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar like ours. There's 365.2 days uh, out of the year, and a leap year every once in a while to re- a leap day, if you will, to reset all of that. Uh, the Jews had a leap month they would throw in uh, every once in a while to reset that particular calendar. So, yeah, we know exactly uh, when. Uh, the Easter was, it was on Nisan 14th on the Jewish calendar. As far as Jesus' birthday is concerned, uh, we don't know that. Uh, we do uh, have some bits and pieces and uh, some detective work that we can do to gain somewhat of an insight. Uh, the idea that it was on December 25th, uh, probably uh, a guess, a stab, if you will, but uh, some problems with that, right, Sean? Yeah, it's based on not scripture, but a cultural tradition that the perfect life is going to die on the same day that they were conceived. So based on that non-biblical principle, they then looked at Nisan 14, subtracted or uh, added nine months to the conception and said, oh, well, then he would have been born at around the end of December. So if that's the case, then we have to ask, where did you get that standard from? The information in the Bible, tested by information outside of the Bible, you can see why we don't necessarily buy the dating system. However, it's a 1 out of 365 shot as far as our modern calendars go. What we need to know about Christmas, however, is what was told to us, because as far as the Gospel of Luke is concerned, we're given more than enough information, and also sources outside the Bible that can verify this. First of all, when it comes to, did Jesus even have a birthday? 
If we don't know it, then how can you say that he was ever born? Well, this is an easy one. Let's just start with the bare bones basics. According to the Roman critic of Christianity, Tacitus, in his book Annals, he claims that Christus was crucified in Jerusalem and that his sect grew and spread even into Rome. If you died, that means that you were born at some point. Yeah, that, verify that's pretty that. much a prerequisite, yeah. <laughs> we can also verify that with Marabun Seraphian, who was a Greek. We can talk about non-Christian Jews like Josephus, who acknowledged Jesus' uh, existence as well as his death. So we can infer from that he was indeed born. The question then is when? Well, there have been people of, uh, I guess, ill repute as well as honored who have claimed, oh, well, maybe it was during the Feast of Trumpets, the announcing of the Messiah, or maybe it was to coincide with this other special Jewish holiday, or they would read their cultural traditions into it, thus the December 25th date. They would say, in counter to this, oh, well, it was impossible for people in the dead of winter to be hosting sheep. Uh, outside of the city, they would have all been in pens. Well, that's inaccurate. There would have been shepherds watching the animals meant for sacrifices at all times around the clock. In fact, the fact they were out there isn't a dismissal of that case. It probably just shows the extreme circumstances surrounding it. The other objections that people would make is saying, oh, well, you know, it's all just guesswork. What do we actually know? And the answer is, what do we need to know? And Luke answered that question for us in his gospel, where he begins as a historian of the first rank that he was, and that's not my words, by the way, that was the review of a historian going over his work. Uh, In Luke chapter 2, he gives us a good time frame, not for the date as in month or day, but within the year, and that's worthwhile as far as ancient history is concerned. This is Luke 2 and verse 1. It came to pass in those days. What days? Well, the days in which Jesus was going to be born. That a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, stopping already right there, is Caesar Augustus a real person, or are we already in fantasy town? A very real person. And we know the dates in which he lived. This would have been around the time of the turn of the first century, being one of Rome's most prominent Roman emperors and the first who claimed himself to be a god. It was also very often that he would order registry for taxes. We have records of taxes being cyclical every four years or so, according to a Roman record we uncovered in Egypt. So note that point. Verse 2, it says, This census first took place. So which census? While Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, it was Quirinius, a individual who had governorship over Syria in the time of Caesar Augustus. Well, that uh, gets to be a bit of a debatable point in that some will say that uh, he was a governor at, only at a later time. But uh, we do now have documentation that he was a governor of Syria more than once, including in the time frame that would fit in the Gospel of Luke. And it also notes that other historical figures like Herod the Great, when he ordered the extermination of the little ones, uh, was still alive at this time. And since he died around, was it 4 BC? Yeah. That would put Jesus's birth at least at that point, assuming Herod died that year. 
But when it comes to the dates that we're given, we're not told numbers in a month, <laughs> if, if that's what you're looking for. It's not like registering your credit card on PayPal. But if, on the other hand, we're told historical documentation, real people, real places, real things we can examine and test, we are told when around Christmas was, as far as the year, and the month and day for Easter, because it was a Jewish holiday, one they needed to know to the day. But as far as Jesus' birth to the year, we don't need to know that information, so we aren't told. As far as what we can examine, though, I'd say it's sufficient. If he was born, that also means that he lived. And if he lived, that also means that the reports about his death are eventually going to happen. But when we go to the eyewitnesses, there is also something that happened after his death. That's why we celebrate Easter. Let us know if that helps you out, King Technology. Yeah, the only other thing I would uh, add to that is uh, this uh, issue becomes kind of a dust-up for some people in that uh, they'll say, well, you know, because we can't know for sure and, and so on, why do we celebrate this? Aren't these kind of paganized holidays or wild speculations? Um, you know, I just uh, would defer to Romans chapter 14 and verse 5, where we're told one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike, let each be convinced in his own mind. Uh, you know, there were those that would say, oh, well, we need to keep these Jewish feast days and so on. Uh, you know, what Paul says, that's uh, a place of complete freedom. You're not more godly if you do or less godly if you don't. And I think that simple principle is one that we really need to keep in mind when people start getting into the, no, 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 he wasn't born on December 25th. And any church that does this is taking the mark of the beast. You know, time out, you know, just relax, take a deep breath, you know. You have to ask, okay, why are we celebrating on these days? The reason we at Calvary Christian Fellowship and Calvary Chapels in general will have Christmas uh, Eve and Christmas Day services or uh, Easter services, Easter sunrise services, is because we want to reach as many people for Jesus as we can. And in this culture, uh, I guess they call them C&Es, Christmas and Easter kind of attenders. Uh, you know, some people get a little bit out of shape about that because some of these C&Es have a funny way of sitting in their particular place where they always like to sit uh, in church. But uh, we want to bring in as many people as we can, including people that, well, maybe don't make a regular habit of being at church. What a great opportunity to be able to reach out to people. So that's our point of view. Uh, we want to, by all means, save some. So uh, your conviction is different on that. Honor your conviction. You don't want to damage your conscience over a day on the calendar. And if it's a real bummer to you to uh, not to uh, celebrate Christmas on uh, December 25th, then don't celebrate it on December 25th. Just rejoice in the fact that we know that Jesus was, in fact, born. We know that he died. Uh, we know uh, when he died from the Passover calendar, Nisan 14th. And I think that's really where we need to leave it. But uh, let's not get into one of those let's circle the wagons and shoot each other debates among Christians over something that really is an, an area of Christian freedom. All right. And speaking of saving some, a question from our website. Well, why does Jesus say, many will say to me, and he quotes Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, have we not done this and that? And he says, depart from me, for I never knew you. And then he also references, if I go to the stake to be burnt as a martyr, but have not love, I'm nothing. He infers this to me, and can you think you are saved and not be? God seems serious on this matter concerning those passages. Real quick, Light Dragon, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Oh, I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I am meaningless noise, sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Though I give all my goods to the poor, but have not love. I have faith to remove mountains. 
give my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul isn't giving a salvific condition here, saying, well, if I don't love perfectly, then that means I'm not saved. No, it's saying that if you want a spiritual gift, the previous chapter and final verse, I show you a more excellent way. This is what Paul is explaining, that every spiritual gift, every spiritual act without love is meaningless. So if you want a spiritual gift, love. Have the love of God. That's what you want. Don't forget tongues, forget prophecy. You want love. But that's the point of that passage. It's not uh, one we should read our salvation's conditions into. That being said, though, Matthew 7 is certainly not one to uh, blink at. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 is certainly one we should take seriously. And Paul, not in 1 Corinthians 13, but in his letters to the Corinthians, says, test yourself to see you're in the faith. How do we do that if it's possible for someone to think they're saved and they aren't? How do you know that you know that you know that you're saved? Well, yeah, the, the uh, whole issue of assurance of salvation is, is a huge one. And the scripture wouldn't say, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves? It gives us the test that Christ Jesus is in you, lest you fail the test. Now, that's a really important thing for us to focus on. Do we know that Christ Jesus is in us? How can we know this? Well, I think there's three ways that we can know that Jesus, in fact, is in us. First of all, the promises of God. What has Jesus promised to those who will come to him? First of all, he said, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. We need to ask ourselves this question. Have I come to Christ for salvation? Is he the one I'm looking to to save me? Uh, secondly, he said, and this is a promise of God, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Okay, I need to ask myself this question. Have I come to Jesus and received him as my Savior? How do I do this? Well, Romans chapter 10 Verses 9 through 10, the Apostle Paul makes it very, very clear that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Uh, in fact, a few verses down in Romans chapter 10, we are told that everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. So we need to ask ourselves the question, have I come to a place where I have uh, prayed and asked Christ to be my Savior, where I've confessed him as my Lord, where I've said, I believe that God raised you from the dead. If we come to him on that basis, uh, he won't turn us away. So the promises of God. Secondly, do we have the internal witness of God's Holy Spirit? In Romans 8 and verse 15, we are told that God has not given us a spirit of fear leading to bondage, but has given us the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, do we have this internal witness from the Lord that we belong to him? Now, I realize that's a subjective thing, and sometimes we're more in tune with that than others. But is there that you know that you know that you know that God loves you? You know, you've had that experience where the Lord has confirmed the fact that uh, you have put your faith and trust in his promises. And finally, is there progression in our walk with God? You know, in the book of 2 Timothy, or 2 Peter, I should say, chapter 1 and verse 5, you know, the Bible tells us that there is a series of steps of growth that God wants to work out within our lives as believers in Christ. Uh, and as we see ourselves growing in Christ-like character, uh, the Bible says, uh, Peter speaking there, that if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be uh, fruitless uh, nor barren in your walk with God. And so a uh, open door of salvation will be presented to you by God. You know, and so... 
uh, as we see the Lord working on our lives. Granted, uh, sometimes Christ-like character takes time, and sometimes it seems like it's the three steps forward, two steps back process in our lives. We can look at our lives and say, is knowing Jesus, having Jesus in my life, changed my life? Has it changed me morally? Has it changed me relationally? Has it changed me in terms of uh, what I consider the most important things I invested in my life? If I see the Lord making those changes in my life, then uh, I can have great assurance in my walk with God. So those three things, first of all, the personal witness of God's Holy Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit that we're his children. Secondly, have we taken God up on his promises? And third, do we see progression in our walk with God? If we see those things, we can have great assurance in our walk with God. In fact, God doesn't want us to be in the dark as far as our salvation is concerned. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, we are told, for instance, these things I write to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, the word know there, really interesting in the original language, there's a couple of different words for know there. One is gnosko, that means more uh, experiential knowledge. But the word you use there is oida. Uh, it's a uh, factual kind of knowledge, the same kind of confidence that you have, like say, for instance, did you know the sun is going to come up tomorrow. So God doesn't want us in the dark. He doesn't want us uh, to be guessing whether we're in or not. And I think as we search our hearts on a regular basis, as we remember with Thanksgiving those wonderful times where God has confirmed to us that we are his children, we put our faith in his promises, the promises of his word, and Jesus' performance for us, that he is a trustworthy person, that he died on the cross for us and rose from the dead so that we could have life, then, boy, I think we've nailed it. Let us know if that helps you out. Uh, here's a great question. This is on our website as well from Casey, who wants to know, can you tell us where in the Bible we learn when an unborn baby receives its spirit? And if a mama has a miscarriage, will she know her baby in heaven? Anything you can teach on this subject is helpful. Thank you. You're not alone, Casey. We get this question a lot. The concern that a lot of people have regarding the estate of the unborn is not necessarily the Bible's lack of clarity on this matter, but the world's demonstrative and droning shouting on this matter, that until a child is born, it doesn't actually have the rights or identity of a human being. And then because we hear this so often and so loudly, that is then read into Scripture, or at least it brings up the question. Three passages that will ultimately throw this issue out, hopefully with just the bathwater, pun intended. Uh, the first and most important one is in Second Samuel chapter 12, where in judgment for David's sin with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan pronounces that the child born from this adultery would physically die. Now, you'd say, oh, that's harsh. Well, remember, God's the one who gives life. He's the one to take it. It wasn't a command for David to go and lob his child's head off. This child would die from natural causes, but noting he was explained, there was a spiritual reason for it. And what was interesting wasn't just the fact this child died, but notice and that you can maybe clarify the word for a child used to describe this little baby. It was a baby, right? Very, very right. young. Okay, right. so noting that point, he hadn't been bar mitzvahed. He hadn't passed the California state laws mandate and all that other stuff. It's talking about a very, very small little pudding person, if you will. Now, uh, his observation was, I'm trying to be lighthearted. This is a dark issue. In Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 22, 
the individuals who were going to report that the child had died hear an interesting response when they worry, is he going to freak out? He says in verse 22, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Now, here's where the death of the child comes in. We'll get to the miscarriage application in a moment. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So noting at this state at which consciousness has not been received yet, according to the Internet propaganda, what does David describe this child's not only spiritual identity, but his spiritual destination and present reality? Wherever David was going after he physically dies, I will go to him, he will not return to me. He is in a state of physical death, which means he's going to where I'm going. And unless we think that David thought he was going to exist in a state of, uh, you know, uh, etheric non-existence in non-Euclidean abyss, no, Psalm 23, right? I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He had an expectation of that. So with that then working knowledge, how do you go to prenatal state? Well, basically the same arguments and passages we would use as proof texts against the propaganda. First of all, in, again, quoting David, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, he also shared the observation that he was known by God, that he had an identity before God, a spiritual state before God, when he was still in his mother's womb, when he was being knit together or formed in his mother's womb. Yeah, and, even so much so that uh, David said, your eyes saw my unformed substance and the days which were ordained for me when there is not yet one of them. Uh, in other words, before a single cell divided after conception, God knew who David was. Right, and the prophets, Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 1, and Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5 note, before they were physically born, they had a spiritual calling by God. David in Psalm 51 and verse 5 notes that he was in a sinful state. He had moral culpability before God when he was a child. And then we can talk about the age of accountability, and you like, we believe that God's grace covers those who haven't had the ability to come to a conscious decision about whether to receive salvation or not. That would certainly apply to the unborn. We can also talk about, just like with the gun issue, legal principles where the life of a unborn child, if you hit a woman causing a miscarriage, then you not only have to pay whatever the dad charges for you, I bet that will be low, but also noting that you have to pay the price for for a life, right? noting that identification. We can go on. We can go to the New Testament where in Luke chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 1, there's these identifications of babies in every single stage of trimester, first and second more specifically, where in any sense they were identified as not only being spiritually aware but spiritually identified and combined with the true statements we read in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 22 and 23, commit it to memory, Those would be the words of comfort we would give to someone grieving a miscarriage or someone who is wondering, will I see my child again? Yes, they were a child, no matter what the world tells you. Yes, God has them in hand, no matter what the world wants you to think in order to justify their behavior. And yes, you will see them again. Now, there's a—anything more you want to say on this before you move to another topic uh, somewhat related? Yeah, I just think, uh, Casey, I really appreciate you bringing it up because— uh, this issue is really uh, coming to uh, a watershed in our culture. Uh, we do see 
uh, different states really going in opposite directions as far as protecting the lives of preborn children are concerned. Uh, we do see states like Alabama, Oklahoma earlier this week, uh, Arizona passed a similar measure, Texas, uh, passing laws that protect uh, prenatal life, preborn life. And uh, then we see other states like Massachusetts or uh, most terrifically, California is uh, conducting hearings on a bill called AB 2223, authored by Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks, uh, that would allow uh, not only uh, abortion up to the moment of birth, uh, but also, according to testimony that happened uh, in Sacramento today by Dr. Vanson Wong, who was a practicing OBGYN of 30 plus years, he said this, a close inspection of this bill does allow for the legalization of the killing of innocent newborn children up to the age of 28 days. Uh, there was also some really disturbing man on the street interviews where there were individuals that were saying, well, you know, I support uh, a woman's uh, right to choose, uh, including choosing to kill their baby up to the age of 28 days. They thought that was fine. Uh, wow, uh, it is so important for us to understand what the Bible says about this issue, because uh, poll after poll, Casey, has shown that even those who are professing evangelical born-again Christians, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers vary, but a good 30% of those who identify in such a way uh, support uh, unlimited uh, rights of uh, women to abort their children. So uh, we really do need uh, not to harp on this issue, uh, but to be uh, biblically educated on this issue and realize that this is not an issue that we can agree to disagree on. Uh, this is uh, definitely the line in the sand to draw the hill to die on uh, as far as uh, those of us as Christians are concerned, uh, because Jesus had some very strong things to say about individuals that would uh, harm children anyway. He said it was better for a person to have a millstone tied around their neck and be tossed into the sea than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Well, if that's the case for those who are post-born, uh, you can probably imagine that the Lord has very similar things to say about pre-born life, uh, about the innocent uh, suffering, uh, just the, the brutal evisceration that is involved with abortion. Uh, so we definitely want to be on that side of things and choose life, for sure. Right. Now, uh, then building on that question, Nina wants to know uh, what age we will be in the glorified state. Uh, the concern is that some will, like, stay the age of being young or babies or just not age despite being a billion or being too aged, if you will, in the opposite direction. You know, uh, we're, we're not really told uh, specifically, uh, but we are told that when we are— uh, we will see Jesus, we will be like him, we will see him as he is. Uh, from that, uh, we take a look at Jesus' glorified body, uh, seeing that he died at roughly 33 years of age. I think it's probably safe to say that uh, individuals in a glorified state are going to be full grown. Uh, you know, we tend to look at a 33-year-old and say, well, you know, I mean, is that really the peak? You know, are they starting to decline at this point? Uh, you know, that's not really the issue because uh, there is going to be no more death or decay or anything else like this. I think it's safe to say that we will be fully grown. We take a look at how God created uh, Adam and Eve 
in the beginning, he did not create them fertilized eggs. Uh, he created them fully grown, fully uh, functioning human beings uh, that uh, were probably at a similar uh, state of development as we see Jesus in his glorified body. So although we're not told specifically how old we will be, uh, we will uh, be everything that God created us to be at that particular state. All right. A uh, question from Monica regarding the book of Revelation. Uh, those who were slain during the first half of the tribulation, some would say, they say, they are not those who were slain during that time. They were the believers who were slain for their faith going back 2,000 plus years. Well, let's go to the passages and see what is clarified for us. Uh, obviously under the altar, so let's start with Revelation 6 and verse 9. Right. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white rope was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Now, are we explained who they are in that passage? The answer is no. However, we're given two details about them. They have been slain, actually three things. They want vengeance, but they're bringing that vengeance rightly before the throne of God, and they're given white robes. Now, Hold on to that, because we're going to go to the immediate next chapter and see if an explanation is given and similar things are taking place. After the 144,000 are introduced in verses 1 through 8, we read in verse 9 of Revelation chapter 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed with White robes. White robes, yeah. With palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels stood around the throne, repeated in this worship. Now, here we go. In verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in, right, who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. This is a quotation of the Gibeonites and Joshua. But note that the common apparel, if you will, how did their, wo their robes excuse me, get white? They were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Well, it says there, it doesn't say that those are martyrs. Well, it doesn't say that the people in Revelation 6 were those who were dead 6,000 or 2,000 years prior. Right. We're inferring that on the text. I'm the only one who's looking at the immediate context and applying common parallels that are actually in writing. I believe, and I personally can back this up, that in Revelation chapter 6, it is a common reference to those who are physically dying at this time as a result of the first two, or four, excuse me, plagues. A quarter of the world's population has been killed at this point, and it hasn't been a pretty life. But people are coming to know the Lord at this time as well. Some of them are going to, of course, be believers. So when they stand before the throne of God, naturally they want vengeance, but they're letting God do that for him. And 
he does it quite well. But noting that point as well, in yeah. the immediate next chapter, Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, we're told those in white robes. What were people in Revelation 6 wearing? White robes. What were they saying? Salvation belongs to our God. How did they get there? They came out of the Great Tribulation. I'd consider that more information, not less. Yeah, absolutely. All right. <laughs> Nothing more to add, so I yeah, I assume... think that pretty much nailed it. So. <laughs> okay, uh, here's a question from Martine, who wants to know about Genesis 5 and verse 3, where it notes, Seth, the son of Adam, was a son in his own likeness after his image. The same is not said in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1 regarding Cain, so is that a note that Cain was not in God's image while Seth's progeny were? Yeah, this... Uh, this seems not close, but concerningly in the direction that a lot of racial supremacist groups try to use in what's regarding the Mark of Cain or the Serpent Seed Doctrine, that if you're a part of this ethnicity, that that somehow makes you less right with God or incapable of salvation. You're of this biological line that your physical traits somehow tie to your relationship with right. God. Right. What is meant and what is and what should be taken away from Genesis 5.3? Yeah, well, that phrase, uh, made in the image and likeness of God, is really key. Remember, uh, that was what separated man from any other creation God had made. We were made in God's image and likeness. Now, that doesn't mean, for instance, that, you know, God is, you know, about six foot two inches tall, and, uh, has blue eyes and brown hair. It, it doesn't mean any of that at all. What it means is, is that we share the spiritual and personal characteristics of God. Uh, in other words, just as God is creative, we, we are a creator, we are creative. Just as God is relational, we are given the ability to be able to love and so on. And, and the list goes on. Just as God is intelligent, so that we have the gift of intelligence. It's all about the character, not necessarily about the externals. And so when the scripture talks about how God, uh, again, Adam conceived and bore a son, Seth, in his image. Uh, what it's saying is, unlike Cain, who didn't share a desire to have a relationship with God or a love for God like Adam did, even after his fall, uh, Seth had that kind of relationship. And we do see in Genesis chapter 5, the descendants of Seth, as opposed to the descendants of Cain, in Genesis chapter 4, boy, the descendants of Cain in Genesis chapter 4, they're kind of a rogues gallery of uh, tough characters and rotten eggs and so on. Uh, but then you see in Genesis chapter 5, the descendants of Seth were individuals who loved God. I mean, a real contrast is the highlight of the descendants of Cain was a guy named Lamech who even uh, wrote a song and sang it to his two wives. Uh, that uh, he uh, killed a teenager for giving him lip. Uh, and then you see, in contrast, in the, uh, the descendants of Seth, uh, a guy like Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him. In other words, he was the exact opposite of what Lamech was all about. So that's really what the image and likeness of God is in that particular passage. It doesn't necessarily mean any kind of a physical characteristic, whether it's hair color, skin color, eyes, you, you name it, all those are, are very, very external in their nature. All of us being referred to there is sharing a similar character quality 
And uh, apparently, just as Cain uh, literally uh, uh, was uh, an individual that uh, Adam and Eve had high hopes for, uh, his name uh, literally meant, I've gotten a man from the Lord. They thought he was going to be the, the promised Messiah who crush the serpent's head. Well, after a while of seeing Cain probably going through the terrible twos, uh, they named uh, their next child uh, uh, Abel. Uh, literally meant wind or emptiness, vanity. Uh, so uh, when you see that image and likeness there, it really has to do with character quality rather than any kind of physical characteristics. Yeah, so no. as far as reading into the passage, uh, oh, Genesis 4.1 says Cain wasn't in the image and likeness of Adam, so there's this corruption. It was a moral one, not a physical one. I just stick to what's in the text, not infer yeah. what isn't. Yeah. Uh, Holly wants to know, how does God define love? How do we love like him, and how does he love? Well, we have a good description in 1 Corinthians 13 and how he loves. We have a good demonstration in the Gospel of Luke and the others when he washed the disciples' feet and explaining, as I have loved you, so love one another. But how do we love like him? How does God define love? Well, uh, probably the most succinct answer is, I mean, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8, gives us a breakdown. Love suffers long and is kind. It does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, seeks not his own, uh, thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It believes all things, bears all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. You know, there's 16 different characteristics of love that are mentioned there in that passage. But uh, if we really want to boil it down, what love is, is a reflection of the very character of Jesus Christ. First uh, John chapter four, verses seven through eight says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who doesn't love doesn't know God, for God is love. Uh, those 16 characteristics are all embodied in the very person of Jesus Christ. So uh, we see in this passage, Holly, how God defines love. Uh, we see how he loves. Love has been manifest among us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, we're told in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Uh, love is a sacrificial uh, act on God's part, not self-seeking, but seeking the betterment and blessing of others at all times. But how do we love like him? Well, uh, natively or naturally, Holly, uh, we can sort of in little fits and starts reflect some of those characteristics but to love the way that God loves requires an absolute miracle uh, to take place. And that miracle is the filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit within our lives. In Galatians chapter 5, they're told that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All those things characterize, again, the character of Jesus manifested within our lives. So the best way for us to love like him is to first of all realize we can't do it by our own power, no matter how well-intentioned that might be. We have to ask for a miracle to take place, for God to fill us with his Holy Spirit and overflow us with his love. We by faith come to God and ask him to do for us in and through us what we can't do for ourselves. A miracle takes place. We find ourselves being able to love with the love of Jesus, even among the very unlovely or ungrateful or very difficult circumstances we get into. But it all comes down to the fact that uh, God wants to work that Christ-like character out in us, and maybe the best way to hit that bullseye every time 
is to, before I feed at the car in the morning, to say, Lord, uh, just let the love of Jesus flow through me, through the power of your Holy Spirit, no matter what happens today. And uh, boy, you'll uh, see God do miracles in your life. All right. And then to finish up, a question from Ron, who wants to know uh, Duke University's uh, theology, unfortunately, uh, coming out with a prayer to the queer God, this pansexual, non-binary drag queen in the sky, so on and so forth. Uh, Very interesting. But the question is, do we have any idea where this may have originated? How did a major university of divinity go so far off the rails? You can, again, read about their prayers to this gender-fluid, transhuman drag queen, the strange one, the fabulous one, fluid and ever-becoming one. It's another example of something that's uh, not new at all. In the book of Romans chapter 1, there's a description that's given of what's called idolatry. Not when we worship God, but when we make our own God who's just like us. Though God isn't insecure about his gender because he doesn't have one. John 4 24 notes, God is spirit and those who worship must worship him in spirit and in truth. We're told that people who come up with these ideas about who God is that just aren't true are ultimately bearing the fruit of something that's going on in their hearts. It says in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, pressing to be wise, Duke University of Theology, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. While God isn't insecure about his gender, while God isn't fluid or a drag queen or any of these other things, he's being given the attributes of what describe the people who are worshiping this. The problem with this isn't that we are disrespectful or bigoted against people who have a different view or perception or experience, as Deepak Chopra once said, of God than us. The reason is because a fake God can't save you. So when it comes to this university and the God they're putting forward, it's an idol, literally a nothing, like anything else. But when it comes to the Jesus that can save them, we just need to understand that even though they claim to have gone to higher education, they're in just as much need of salvation as anyone else because they're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Well, the music is coming on, so we'll have to step out for now. Dad, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your prayers and keeping the technology intact. We'll look forward to talking to you all again next time. Until then, this has been Sean Richards with Scott Richards on A Reason for Hope. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.